The scam works like this. A letter arrives in your mailbox, not quite like your standard set of bills and junk mail. It's from a psychic, promising you good luck and riches or talismans against misfortune and loneliness. All you have to do is send a photo or lock of hair with a small payment. After the first response, another letter arrives, asking you for more. Then another. Sometimes they include handwritten notes or specific fortunes, readings and visions from the psychic. Your personal fortune is usually just words like Tuesday and big winnings. They're signed, your devoted and sincere friend, Maria Duval. But who exactly is Maria Duval? That's what CNN investigative reporters Blake Ellis and Melanie Hicken spent months trying to figure out. Piece by piece, they unraveled the international business empire behind Maria Duval, a woman the government said might not exist. On this episode, Blake and Melanie take us behind their reporting into one of the biggest mail scams in history. I'm Julie Christie, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. Back in October 2015, Blake and Melanie were looking into scams that targeted the elderly when they asked two sources if they'd be willing to send over some examples of mail their loved ones received. We were in between investigations um, looking for our next story and just thought, oh, we might as well go through these boxes and just see if there's anything interesting in here. They started sorting the letters, organizing them by type, things like charity scams and political mailings, until they found one letter that wasn't like the rest. A psychic named Patrick Guerin promised to help change people's lives. In the letter Blake and Melanie read, he included a newspaper article that featured a man who claimed to have won $1 million with Guerin's help. So, I mean, we were just so confused about how a letter like this could work. So we searched Patrick Guerin's name online and immediately found a government lawsuit against him, but also against an even bigger psychic, and that was Maria Duval. In 2014, The Department of Justice filed a lawsuit to stop the companies producing the Duval letters from sending mail in the United States. According to the lawsuit, there are 1.4 million victims in the U.S. alone. Um, And then when we searched the name Maria Duval online just to see what would come up, we found just complaint upon complaint from people who had fallen victim uh, to the scam or who had a loved one who was duped by it. They weren't sure whether their editor would let them spend months investigating a psychic mail scheme, but a phone call to an inspector with the law enforcement arm of the U.S. Postal Service revealed they were on to something big. He told us that it was one of the biggest cases he'd ever worked on, and he had been involved in these massive Ponzi scheme cases. And and he brought up how it had more victims than the Madoff Ponzi scheme and just how it affected so many people all over the world. And so for us, I think we got off that phone call and we realized that this was about so much more than a psychic or a mail scam, that this was actually one of the the biggest consumer frauds in history, and that made it incredibly worthy of our attention. Blake and Melanie decided to start with the victims. Scammers of all kinds often prey on the elderly, 
and the letters from Maria Duval were no different. And we were hearing and reading stories about people suffering from severe dementia, even brain cancer, and all kinds of other ailments. Each victim received a letter or responded to an ad which promised aura readings and fortunes for a small payment, usually around $40. Once they received the first payment, the scammers sent more letters, asking for more money. Sometimes the victims received cheap trinkets that were supposed to help them or provide luck. But the letters never stopped, and people kept sending in money, convinced Duval could help them. Blake and Melanie scoured forums for upset consumers looking for victims and their families. They asked for contact information and generated a list of victims. One woman told the reporters her mother, who was suffering from Alzheimer's, sent Duval $139 every month. Another 80-year-old woman sent Duval payments sometimes twice a day, adding up to $2,400 in a single year. And there were more extreme cases, like Claire Ellis, a 17-year-old girl from the United Kingdom who was found dead in a river in 1998. A letter from Duval was in the girl's pocket, and her parents told local newspapers they believed their daughter's correspondence with Duval and other psychics had a negative effect on her mental health in the months leading up to her death. The victims shed light on the size of the scam. Anyone who is financially or emotionally vulnerable could get wrapped up in the letters. But then soon after we kind of grasped the scope of this and how it was affecting people, we did turn to trying to identify the business people who had actually been orchestrating the scam and making money from it because we knew that that, that would really be the only way to hold anyone accountable. Uh, but we, we never expected that reporting to turn into such a massive endeavor, and that really became the crux of our, our whole investigation. For years, officials in the U.S. and Canada had been trying to shut down the Duval scam with no success. Was Maria Duval even real? No one knew for sure. As Blake and Melanie began peeling back the layers behind the scam, they started to realize why the mystery had puzzled investigators across the globe. A mess of shell companies sustained the global scam. Duval letters popped up in countries from Germany to New Zealand, the United States to Japan. A Canadian company called Infogest Direct Marketing bounced letters all over North America to avoid government agencies trying to shut them down. Then victims would send money or mementos to the U.S. or Canadian addresses of Destiny Research Center. But the money never made it to the center's headquarters in Hong Kong. Instead, the reporters learned, it was sent to a different company based in Long Island, where the scammers could take in up to half a million dollars from victims in two weeks. Any mementos sent to the alleged psychic would be thrown away. But the web of companies connected to Maria Duval's name was even more tangled. The shell companies would have shell companies of their own, and as Blake and Melanie dug deeper, businesses or evidence would seemingly disappear. Websites for Duval were deleted, and Blake and Melanie had to use the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine to keep a record of what people were trying to hide. It definitely seemed like people knew we were looking into this and possibly talking to each other. Um, one funny example that we will always remember is that after calling one of the key businessmen, this one was in Australia, we called him out of the blue and he answered um, in a chipper voice and said hello and his name so we knew it was him. But when Blake and Melanie mentioned Maria Duval, the line went silent before he hung up. They called back, only to be sent to voicemail. When they tried again a week later, something strange happened. 
his voicemail had been completely changed to some sort of lawn seed business, um, and he never answered any of our calls again, and then he quickly took down his LinkedIn page. The Australian man owned Maria Duval's website domain and the trademarks for her name. When he wouldn't return Blake and Melanie's repeated calls, they dug up everything they could about his company. It was based in a small British town, Stratford-upon-Avon, and the address was for a small building connected to a fabric shop. But according to a free online UK company registry database, more than 100 businesses claimed the small brick building as their address. Among those companies, Blake and Melanie found even more names connected to Maria Duval. With all these companies and connections, organization was essential. So we actually went pretty old school, and uh, we were both working in the New York newsroom at the time, and we got one of those massive big poster boards and just started mapping it out visually. So um, we would draw like a circle flowchart kind of thing, and we would write that, you know, Maria Duval is in the center, and then we would put out to the different businesses and the business people, and we would help see who was connected to who, and so visualizing that was really helpful. One of the companies on that board was called Astroforce, and it had been linked to the scam for years. But none of the listed directors returned their calls, so they decided to track down Astroforce employees another way. Even though it was a scam, there was a legitimate company that or I guess legitimate might be the wrong term, but there was a physical company that had done distribution of all sorts of mail kind of products in Switzerland. And so there were a lot of people that had said that they had worked at that company. So they turned to LinkedIn, where they thought they might be able to track down past Astroforce employees. And so I I think it's something people would never think that you'd be able to find employees that had worked on a scam uh, on LinkedIn, but we did. And that Um, ended up being really crucial to us uh, in locating people who had been directly exposed to the inner workings of this. After countless messages to former employees, Blake and Melanie received a response from a source who proved invaluable. And he had worked for the company in the 90s and was really surprised that it was still around. Um, And he he knew a lot about the operations that went into producing the Maria Duval letters. The source who remained anonymous in the published investigation, confirmed one of Blake and Melanie's theories. On our crazy homeland board had kind of narrowed down the businessmen to these two people. Um, One was the copywriter um, who this source told us was the genius behind the story of the letters, like the whole Maria Duval story. Um, and then another man whose company handled the business operations. And until we talked to this inside source, it was just kind of our theory um, and what what we were thinking had happened. But he basically confirmed that that's how it had worked and that these men were crucial to the scam. The two businessmen were named Jacques Maillard and Jean-Claude Roy. This was a crazy moment for us. Um, We had confirmed that Jacques had been crucial to the scam and believed he was actually the one who had come up with the whole Maria Duval story for the letters, which had drawn in so many victims. But Blake and Melanie couldn't find anything about him online that was recent. Even social media didn't have any clues as to what he'd been up to. 
So we were going through every single photo he had been tagged in on Facebook um, when we saw that one of them had been posted by this Brazilian surfing school. Um, so since we had run out of any other options, we decided to contact the surfing school. We got an email address for them to see if they remembered him. Um, and they were actually the ones who emailed us. Um, and Melanie and I were sitting next to each other at our desk um, before going to lunch. And we got this email from the Brazilian surfing school saying that Jacques, who's this key mastermind, had died in a motorcycle accident. Um, and this was a huge turning point because it not only made us wonder how the scam would survive without him, um, but we really found the timing of his death um, very suspicious. And we still wonder about um, what happened there. <laughs> Jacques Mayan died in France, and privacy laws there made it difficult for Blake and Melanie to find a death certificate, so they couldn't totally confirm what had happened. His 2015 death also occurred in the middle of the U.S. lawsuit that was trying to shut down Duval's letters. He had done a lot of media interviews in the past, so he just had a lot of the answers we were looking for, and I'm sure a lot of answers investigators were looking for, so it was just curious to us that in the middle of all this, he dies in this motorcycle accident. They did get in touch with Jean-Claude, who only agreed to answer questions through email. In 1996, he combined all of his businesses into a firm that ultimately became Infogest, the parent company of the Canadian business that bounced Duval letters across North America. He also held shares at Astroforce, the other major company connected to the letters. Jean-Claude told Blake and Melanie he knew Maria Duval and Jacques Mayan, but that he wasn't involved with the letters contradicting the many business records that linked him to the scheme. He also said he hadn't been a part of the company since 2006, when he retired. Yeah, so at this point, we had spent so long investigating the business people and had finally identified who we believed were the key players. But even after that, it was, it was still Maria Duval's face and name that had been on all of these letters. It was time to find Maria Duval. In 2014 court filing, U.S. prosecutors said, quote, It is unclear whether Maria Duval is a real person or a fictitious character, adding that her existence doesn't change the fact that her letters were a scam. Online searches reveal a blonde French woman to be Maria Duval. She's elderly now, and there are no recent photos of her or articles about her besides ones that mention the scam. Duval was said to be living in Calais, a small town in the south of France, less than an hour from the Mediterranean coast. Its population is less than 2,000 people. Um, we, never, we never expected our editors to go for it when we pitched a trip to France to track down a French psychic, um, but they ended up agreeing with us that it was really important to the investigation because this whole scam did center on this woman. Um, so we ended up traveling to France and um, found her address and were standing outside of her gate. A woman behind the gate said she worked for Duval and that the psychic wasn't there. She was allegedly in Rome, um, so <laughs> we, weren't able, we weren't able to talk to her, but um, we, we tried many, many times, knocked on her gate over and over again, um, but she wouldn't talk to us. So Blake and Melanie found the next best thing, Duval's son. 
He owned a bookstore in a town just an hour from Calais. We talked to him for about an hour in a cafe, and he talked to us about how he believed his mother had become yet another victim of this scam, which is not what we were expecting to hear and, and we're definitely still skeptical of. But he said that she had lost control of her name um, when she signed contracts with these European businessmen um, long ago, and that as soon as she signed those contracts, she had no control over what happened with it and that they could be using her name to sell anything they wanted to and that she couldn't do anything about it. Blake and Melanie published their findings in a five-part series that took readers through their journey to find Duval and the people behind the scam. This was a tough decision because we had never put ourselves in any of our stories before. Um, but even early on, as we started reporting this and um, looking into the scam, we realized that it was going to be a, a story that was just as much about the process of finding these answers um, as it was about the answers themselves and about the dead ends and the twists and turns. But even with five parts, a lot of Blake and Melanie's findings didn't make it into the 2016 story. There were just so many details that didn't fit in there, um, and so much that kept happening once we published the final chapter for CNN. The U.S. government permanently banned the companies tied to the letters from sending any more mail just a few months after the final part of the series was published. Before Blake and Melanie's investigation, the U.S. had only issued a temporary ban. Then, Blake and Melanie were approached by a literary agent who had read their investigation. We were really excited to get to tell even more of that story and go deeper into some of the crazy findings and characters that may have only been a sentence or a paragraph in our original investigation. Their book, A Deal with the Devil, is set to be published this month and it combines their existing reporting for CNN with new details and discoveries. We actually ended up going back to France just recently, a few months, uh, a month or two ago, and uh, right before our book was about to hit publish, and we had a pretty huge revelation on that trip. Blake and Melanie said the book also spends time focusing on the smaller details of the scam's operation, like how people end up on the mailing lists in the first place and how the scam, finally, seems to be coming to an end. Mail fraud is a common topic for news outlets to cover, but it can be difficult to make those stories engaging. When we first heard about this scam, at first we were almost disappointed that the U.S. government had this lawsuit filed because we wondered if that meant it wasn't a story anymore since they were already trying to figure out who was behind it. But then we realized that actually that court case gave us this wonderful kind of first step into determining who was behind it and just all the great details. Blake said reporters should take the time to dig through court cases and find the little details that could make a mail fraud story compelling. It is important for people to realize that they that anyone can do this kind of investigation. And as Melanie was talking about, court documents can be so crucial um, to doing this. And they have oftentimes, they have to have gold mines of 
detailed in color in there, like email correspondence between scammers, um, advertisements, and even photos of the motorcycles that they have bought or the race cars that they've bought with the proceeds from the scams. The investigation also showed that scams aren't as cut and dry as they might seem. It just showed the shades of gray in this where could this woman who was the face of the scam also have been duped? And that just made it such a more interesting case study and just such a more interesting kind of human story. And, uh, you know, we've been calling it almost a fable, uh, the fable of Maria Duval. Thanks for listening. Take a look at our episode notes for links to CNN's investigation and Blake and Melanie's new book. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can spend hours listening to the stories behind some of the best investigative reporting in the country at ire.org podcast. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA. Blake Nelson draws our art for each episode. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Julie Christie. Diary Radio. Podcast. You might want to do that already. Podcast.